Hello and welcome to Access Chat. We're delighted, and I mean it, really truly delighted to welcome Twitter to the show today. So we've got Candy Castlebury Singleton, who is the VP of Diversity Partnership Strategy and Engagement. I got it right. Uh, and also Andrew Haywood, who is a software engineer, but more importantly in this context, the co-chair of Twitter Able, which is the employee or business resource group focused on disability and accessibility. So absolutely delighted to have you both with us. We are big fans of Twitter, obviously, um, because Access Chat exists on your platform, but also because it's the place where people come and convene and talk about uh, the topics that we care about. So thank you for joining us. It's, it's, it's great to have you with us. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, how you came to you know, be working in the space, what what turned you on to firstly diversity in your case, Candy, and 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 then Andrew, you know, what led you to to want to work on Twitter enable? Uh, sorry, Twitter able. I did a couple of letters there. I knew I'd screw it up at some point. <laughs> you got too confident. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think my concern and advocacy around diversity probably began in my activism days at Berkeley as an uh, undergrad. Uh, I have been probably involved in all things diversity since um, that time. I I spent uh, uh, my early career in sales and marketing and doing sort of what Andrew is doing today and being a business resource group uh, lead then in those days called affinity groups, employee resource groups. Um, I've spent uh, some time in uh, sales and marketing at Xerox and then uh, leaving that BRG role, I went into my, I went to work with Sun Microsystems, which was my first tech role. Um, I was asked to consider doing the diversity job, quite frankly. Um, although I had always been active in BRGs, I'd actually not thought about doing this as my full-time job or career. And um, I said I would do the job for 18 months, and here we are nearly 15 years later, and I am still doing this work. I think you know organizations that um, commit to this often uh, think about this from a people perspective um, and have every opportunity from Sun Microsystems to Motorola. I spent some time in healthcare um, at Walgreens and then now here at Twitter. And what I would say in every single case, my mission was not just to uh, think about this uh, from the lens of people and hiring and recruiting and culture, but to think about how diversity and inclusion can enable a greater market expansion, a greater inclusion in the experience that people would have inside of workplaces and also in using the products and services that organizations offer. So here I am, and I'm glad to to be here with uh, uh, our friend, Andrew. That's your cue. That is my cue. Um, So yeah, it's a a difficult question to answer in some respects. Um, I did a little over 20 years ago now, I did an internship with IBM, um, just a sort of summer program and I got to play around with the internet, which at the time was, you know, this pretty new thing, particularly for a sort of just a, an older teenager, um, having never really been exposed to it. You sort of discovered exactly how powerful shared networks could be. Um, 
And Tim Berners-Lee's statement from a few years prior to that uh, around, you know, the access to the, to the web by everyone, regardless of their disability, is an essential aspect of the web. Um, and that's sort of always been in the back of my mind over the last 15, 20 years of doing this professionally. Um, of just, it's such an amazing platform to be able to deliver stuff to everyone everywhere, no matter what they use to access it. Um, and so, you know, for, for the longest time, I sort of approached it from a very technical point of view, like how can we make this experience accessible to people? Um, and it's only relatively recently in the last few years that I really sort of started wearing the different hat of disability rather than accessibility um, and just started thinking a little less about how to make the experience and more about the people who are experiencing it. Um, and that is not to say that, you know, that the technology is irrelevant, it very much is. Um, but we need to sort of put the, the people consuming products that we make uh, front and center. Otherwise, when we're just not going to, um, you know, we're not, we're never going to build products that suit our audience if we don't know who our audience is. So yeah, that's where I am today. Excellent. And, and, um, Obviously, some of that you're doing through your software development work, and some of it you're you're doing as a result of of your co leadership of your you know, employee business resource group because you call them BRGs, right? Um, and and I think that these organisations are really powerful. We we have uh, one within our own organisation which is Asus Adapt, and they have an influence on on the decisions that our business makes because the employees are stakeholders in the in the organization um so so what are, what are some of the things that, that that you've seen positive coming out of of uh of setting up of, of twitter able because i think it's it's great to see that that there is this group and i know you've also joined purple space which is yeah a, a great organization um, so Twitter Able's been officially around for a little over a year now. We, we launched in September of last year. Um, it, it took most of 2018 to get to that point, um, just getting the right people in the right places. Um, and it has been, it's been quite a, a journey in that respect, just sort of discovering how much, I'm trying to think the best way to put it, given the the appropriate sort of time and um, support, just how much you can achieve for people within your organization. Um, I think it sometimes BRGs can be quite, quite dangerous as a concept. Um, I think companies often sort of look at them as being uh, a thing that allows employees to have a voice, but they don't really support them. And then they expect those employees to, do everything that they need to do in order to have the support they need. They say, okay, you know, you, you're a group, you can exist over there. You can help each other out. Um, and that looks good for us. Um, but you really need that corporate support to actually back that up. Um, you know, you cannot just ask a minority group within a company to look after themselves. You know, obviously it's great to be able to get them together to sort of find a common voice, to be able to talk to each other and, and find out what the problems are, what the good things are. Um, 
And I've been very fortunate at Twitter that we've had that support. We have a dedicated team just there to help BRGs work. Um, and I, I couldn't have asked for more support in the last year. You know, when we came into it, um, there were three of us originally. Um, and I know that certainly two of us had never done any BRG work before. Um, and without that support network, we would have just crashed and burned within months. Um, so it's been really useful to just sort of be able to bring, particularly in, in the case of somewhere like Twitter, where we've got offices all over the world, to be able to bring that global community together. You know, we are not in just in one office. You can't just bump into people like yourself in the corridor. You do need that that global network to be able to, to find time to come together. Um, and so just having that that time and that space dedicated to that, you know, it, it is sort of part of my job now. Like it is recognized that I'm going to be spending time on this. Um, I'm not expected to do it sort of outside of my, my day. Um, and just to have the support of the company to be able to say, yeah, we recognize that you exist as a group. We recognize that you need that support. Um, and we want you to come back to us and tell us what you need as a group. Um, so that, that's a bit of a rambling response, but that, you know, that's my, my sort of my gut feel on how it, it's all come together. I would add that <clears throat> there is uh, there are two people who are instrumental in creating uh, that environment um, that uh, Andrew uh, referenced. And one is Delana Brand, who is the head of uh, inclusion and diversity, among other things. Um, and then there is James Aduka, who is the primary person that uh, works with the BRGs, or at least he and his team. I think um, if you sort of think about this holistically, um, there is the IND work that happens inside. There's the partnerships that I lead that happen outside. Um, and, and then there is um, also a body of work that is uh, about uh, the influencers, right? The people who often are the big users of Twitter. Uh, and there is a group of people who work on that and they're called Twitter Voices. And that is led by Goddess uh, Rivera. What I would also add is that when you think about a holistic strategy, uh, it requires you to think not just about the employees uh, creating the space that Andrew just suggested, time and space to do this work inside, um, but it also create, you also need a culture uh, and leadership to support that. And then you need to think about how it applies to the people who use your products. Uh, so that would include partners and the people who use your products the most, which would be those uh, who would we would call VITs, uh, very important tweeters and the influencers on our platform, uh, which we are calling voices. So when you think about that, it offers an opportunity for us to create a holistic approach to thinking about how we do what we do in a more inclusive way holistically. Um. I just want to, um, I love the answers that you're giving. And so um, I just want to make a quick note that anyone that the BRG is business resource group, sometimes called ERG, employee resource group. I'm sure everybody knew that, but just want to make sure I know acronyms sometimes can be confusing. But I just want to make a comment about both of your um, introductions, because one thing, Andrew, you were saying, you were talking about, and Candy, 
Sandy just talked about this as well, is needing the support from the entire organization, making sure the right stakeholders are included to make sure uh, Twitter or any other brand that's doing this really getting the data that they need to support their employees, but also to support their communities. And I have seen real failures with this, for example, in the United States with corporations that said, okay, y'all go ahead and do that little group that you want to do, but it's actually gone very wrong. I know of, and I won't, will not say the brand on air, but there was a brand that did that and just really ignored the employees. And what happened was um, several employees wound up getting so frustrated by this um, that they quit. And so that is not what you want to do. And I think that's one reason why it is important to work with uh, really powerful groups like the Purple Space. I love the work that Kate Nash does. But, you know, it's like sometimes it's good to get support. But at the same time, you know, you got to you got to know which stakeholders externally and internally to include. So I also wanted to comment, Candy, on when you were saying that you were you didn't go right into diversity and inclusion at the beginning of your career. Um, You took it on. But as as an African-American woman, um, sometimes I, I see uh, people saying, well, obviously you got to do diversity and inclusion. And so I, um, I've had other people say to me, Jenison, who is a very amazing man in our field, said to me one time, Deborah, I, I don't want to go into accessibility or disability inclusion just because I'm blind. But at the same time, we needed y'all so bad. We needed these voices to come in. And so I just applaud that you you really found your place, Candy, because you're doing a wonderful job. And, and I just appreciate the ongoing leadership you're doing in so many ways I'm seeing from a global and U.S. perspective. So I wanted to um, just point that out. But I also have one more comment that I wanted to make it, that was something that Andrew said in his introduction. Um, I, for years, uh, well, really for only six long years, I programmed and I was uh, in the banking industry and I was the lead of the program programming group and I hated it, hated it, hated it. I'm just way too hyper to sit and code all day. And it's so weird. You make one little mistake, do an and instead of an or, and you cut 25,000 checks accidentally. Oops. So yeah. So it's interesting finding your place and finding where do you really belong. But at the same time, having that kind of experience um, also made me better at what I do. But I never coded to leave groups of people out. I never wanted my programs not to work for percentages of people. And so I think it's so important that leaders do what you're doing, Andrew, and that you understood your you you have to do build things for people. It, and yeah, we got to have can, standards and all that stuff, but really building it so human beings can use it. I think we still are not having enough of those conversations. And so I wanted to make those comments, but also ask both of you, we applaud Twitter really making efforts to make sure we're all included. I like Candy, even that on your name, you say Candy Castleberry, but she, her, that tells me you care about inclusion. You know, that tells us, that gives us little clues. And we're seeing Um, Twitter able. And I recently saw Twitter accessibility hashtag. And and we just are very grateful that this platform that is so important to the three of us, but to millions and millions of people that you really are looking at 
the users, and, and I love the VIT. I love that candy. Very important Twitter tweeters. Uh, but so why? Why all? You know why is Twitter? I mean, we we'll, we can fill in this answer, but from y'all, why is Twitter really caring, especially in these really intense, weird times, especially in the U.S.? Why is Twitter? focusing so much on the community that uses Twitter, making sure that we can really use it and have our voices heard in, in you know, the right way. I'm going to let uh, Andrew start on this one. Uh, we had a, a conversation really just about the opportunity that the public conversation uh, allows. So I, I will let him chime in and then I will uh, jump in after him. Um, I think... I mean, social media is a is a very defining aspect of the 21st century, um, for, for better or for worse. Um, but, you know, the, the ability to have a global conversation is so important to so many communities. Um, that's not necessarily a positive thing from a lot of people's perspectives. You know, it, a good conversation is very subjective. Um, a healthy conversation may be less so, um, but certainly... You know, social media has allowed groups to come together um, that wouldn't otherwise have been able to do so. Um, whether that is, uh, you know, the sort of the people with alternative viewpoints, I'll put it politically, diplomatically, um, who who would otherwise have just sort of stayed in their small town and and just been able to keep them, their thoughts to themselves. Um, you know, they have been able to come together and, and share viewpoints that have you know, changed where we stand politically. Um, unfortunately or not, depending on <laughs> your perspective. Um, but equally, it has allowed communities like, you know, like the global disability community, which sort of by its nature is distributed. Um, you don't get, you know, disabled neighborhoods in your town. You don't get a part of the country that is predominantly disabled. It just doesn't work like that. You know, they are sort of almost by definition, the disabled community is distributed. Um, and having social media, I think, has allowed them to come together and, and share in a voice that wouldn't otherwise have happened. Um, yeah, and, and Twitter and other companies like us have a responsibility to, to encourage a, a healthy, safe, safe conversation. Um, you know, I'm not gonna say that we're always successful. Um, it would be kind of ludicrous to suggest otherwise, but I think, you know, it is not through necessarily a lack of trying um, so to, to your point earlier, Deborah, um, we we build for the world we see. I've never met a programmer that go, goes out of their way to build or to exclude a person from what they're building. But when you are building a solution, building an experience, you build it for the people that you are aware of. Um, and, you know, the workplace in general, but but tech in particular has a lot of work to do when it comes to diversion, diversity and inclusion. You know, you, the stereotypical sort of white middle-class male programmer generally only sees other white middle-class males. Um, and so we build for them. And that is, I mean, it's not good, but it's understandable. You know, you build for what you can see. And when that's all you can see, you build for it. Um, it is sort of, it is the, the job of, of BRGs like Twitter Able and the, the other BRGs we have at Twitter and, you know, other companies around the world to, to change that perspective, to, to put other views in front of them. I mean, obviously you can't expect every company to be fully diverse. 
But when you at least have people raising those those voices, those ideas, and saying, "Don't forget about these parts of the population," you know, there might not be huge uh, disability visibility inside tech companies. Again, that needs to change. Um, but most companies don't have it. Like the the disabled um, employment rate is is astronomically high compared to the rest of the population, and that needs to be fixed, <laughs> certainly. Um, but while we're working on that, we need people in place to be able to raise the voices of the black community, of the Hispanic community, of the disabled community, all these different people that aren't necessarily around to be able to say, we are building for these people and you've forgotten them. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, Twitter is doing a, <laughs> I, I might be biased, but I feel like Twitter is doing a really good job of encouraging those different groups to show up. I think, you know, we have an added benefit that we are a global platform that we do allow you know anyone to come and, and share in the conversation, and so we do we do see more of who our our customers are, who who the the people coming to to use our platform are, because they, they are there. We can commun- interact with them immediately. There is no sort of necessarily you don't have to go out and do uh, you know sort of interview groups to find out who is using your platform because they're just there. You can just go on the platform one day and ask a question and have responses, uh, and it's great. Um, one of the, f- the things I enjoy the most as being a software developer is actually getting to interact with with people who use the things that I'm making. Um, it's very easy to shut yourself off in a room and say, oh, I'm just writing code. Um, but being able to interact with the, the people who are using your your product and talking to them and finding out what works, what doesn't work. Uh, that's that's one of my favorite bits of software engineering, frankly. Yeah, I, I would just add um, uh, two things. One is, is that... Um, when I started at Berkeley, I like you, uh, Deborah. Uh, my father wanted me to be an engineer, and so I initially pursued it. But as an extrovert, I thought I would lose my mind. Um, and I, I remember those days of uh, having my program crash because I used a colon instead of a semicolon, and it didn't work the way that I intended. And and in those days, quite frankly, you literally had to go on the paper and look to see like literally what was the, what was the missing, uh, the, the, and, or the, the, uh, the, and, or in your scenario, or in my case, the colon, colon versus semicolon. Um, so, so what, what I can say is, is that, you know, what, what I never thought was taught in school. Um, and quite frankly, um, is we, we try this in corporate America, but not always fully embraced. Um, is the fact that um, we do live in our own cultural bubbles and whatever that is, and whether that's an economic bubble, a faith-based bubble, you know, a racial, ethnic, uh, geographic bubble. Um, and, and, and although many people may be world-traveled, um, travel does not equal cultural experience and learning. And, and I think that what we have lacked as humans is not just empathy for others, but interest uh, in learning about others. Um, I will also comment on uh, your um, statement about being a, a black woman doing this work or uh, in, in, in uh, Andrew's case, being a person who could understand based on his own experiences and have a personal commitment to accessibility because of that. But the reality is, is the world doesn't get better because you have black people or Latinx people people who represent diversity doing the work. The world gets better when it's those engineers that um, Andrew referenced um, who are committed to uh, learning and, 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 ex- and exhibiting a personal 
cultural interest across demographics. Because we as people who have perhaps some difference than others who may be programming, uh, which we need to do a better job in diversifying that in the first place, but, but we don't have a special capability to learn about others. What we have is an interest to learn about others. And so just as we're having this conversation over someone who perhaps has a disability that is uh, seen or unseen, um, has the ability to learn about other kinds of disabilities, they also have the ability to learn about other cultural differences. And people who don't exhibit necessarily or have a disability or represent an ethnicity or a race that may be sort of a priority in organization aren't uniquely qualified to learn about other people. So I think that unless um, the world, right, and until the world um, has as a personal interest um, the willingness to learn about others, uh, we will continue to spiral and then unfortunately have to depend on corporate America or business resource groups or access chat to actually change the way that we operate when this is actually a choice that we can each make every single day. I mean, learning in libraries and particularly with the internet, particularly with Twitter, particularly with access to things that are free, we could all be better humans and understanding the cultural context and differences and how our products and services apply differently. It is a choice that we simply have to make. It is not one that we have to wait for Twitter or access chat to bring to us. And so I would say that for me, um, this interest wasn't because I was doing this work. As I said, I was doing diversity work, not just advocating for black people before I had the job. And one of the classes that I used to teach at Carnegie Mellon University for five years was how not to be a diversity practitioner, but how to think about how diversity applies to your work. And their capstone project, quite frankly, was here's three things that I can do to be more inclusive in my work. And so these were MBA students, they were um, engineers, they were policy, um, and they were, they were all graduate students, and some of them were employed by CMU. And so if we can all think about that very task of what we can do to say what we did, what our contribution was, we don't have to wait on a conversation like this to be better humans. Wow. Okay, sir. So I think I can I can take on that. And uh, this morning I was spending uh, I was at the uh, connect through Zoom with you know, people at University College in Cork, and and we, uh, on a, a group that was taking part on on an, on an event called We the Internet. So people from all over the world uh, under this hashtag were meeting in different regions to discuss how to improve the web. Uh, how to have uh, this kind, and we are talking about people from different areas of life, different types of of experience who wanted to be there to to discuss the future of privacy, connectivity, to, basically to improve the way how we we connect with each other. No, Twitter connects a lot of people around the world. Is un that's unquestionable. What do what do you feel that your responsibility in terms of educating people? Do you feel that you have that responsibility to educate people for uh, how can we create a, a better web by showing uh, example your your example as leading to create a more accessible Twitter? Do you feel that you have that responsibility? 
Well, so I, I think Andrew said it best when he talked about, you know, this is a 21st century. Like the reality is that um, what you're asking is if Twitter has the responsibility to some degree to educate a society that already existed before Twitter with many of these opinions, many of the uh, issues that exist in the world. And what Twitter did was basically put a mirror or, or, or a microphone to that which perhaps if you were in a small town or if you did not know other different kinds of people that um, now you have access to them. So, so to some degree, society, um, all of us have the responsibility. Twitter is one, I think, element of what needs to happen uh, because we are one of the voices or one of sort of the tools that you can use to raise your voice. But the reality is, is that if we truly want to fix the problems that exist that you see on our platform, we also have to address them also in society. Because the reality is, is we can create a policy, uh, we can create, uh, we can try to enforce the policy, we can do all of these things. But the reality is, is at the same time that we're doing that, there are other people who are doing something that opposes the very thing that we do, which is why there's this ongoing innovation to try to keep up with people who actually aren't trying to create a civil society, who aren't trying to promote respectful and healthy conversation. So this is not a problem that Twitter can solve alone, although I do believe that Twitter is committed to doing its part. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, you know, um, some of us are committed to, you know, constructive conversations. You know, that's what we're here for. Um, what other... Um, people also that we admire on your platform are here to do so whilst there has been this polarization in society through through the holding up of the mirror the granting of the megaphone or whatever I, I, but it's also given a megaphone to people whose voices have often not been heard yes you know? so so i think that that whilst people are very critical of, of social media, it's also has got power to do really good things. And that's what we believe and why we um, gravitated towards Twitter for, for access chat, because we have that, that rich conversation. Um, you know, it's, it was in very, very short form when it was 140 characters. It's a, it's it's somewhat longer and somewhat richer now as, as as the platforms evolve, but but it has enabled us to to build this community and 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 as you say, be interested in and listen to voices uh, of people with different experience around the world. And and one of the things that really drove Antonio and I was uh, to to connect with Deborah and and start the whole platform was that the desire and the interest to learn from people because they were on your platform and to interact with them um what we wanted to do and what we hope we've done over the last six years is do that in a way that is welcoming and positive and we would like to to think that the platforms yourselves included are you know continuing to work on how you can increase that positivity that depolarization and that 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 inclusiveness because there is really great potential for people to gain a greater understanding of others um and through that grow a more inclusive better society i think mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I just I made a the, statement and not did. didn't ask you a question. <laughs> but I was just going to follow up with that and say I think the for me two of the biggest issues with social media as a concept um, are echo chambers and nuance. <laughs> um, you know, it, yes, echo chambers in so much as it's very easy to sort of fall into a bubble. Yeah, and and see see what looks like the whole world talking about a particular thing, agreeing with your viewpoint. Um, and then not necessarily, and this isn't like a, you know, sort of a left versus right thing or whatever, like everyone does it. We all see it. Um, and I think the platforms have a responsibility to, to burst those bubbles in a healthy way. Um, the problem with doing that is, is nuance. Um, when you are limited to, you know, 280 characters or whatever the platform provides, um, it's it, it's difficult to to make something make a statement in a way that everyone else is going to understand. Um, it's very easy to sort of to ask a question that might come off the wrong way, um, and that's a human problem. That isn't necessarily a platform problem. I mean, I yes, there's a certain degree of education, but I think we are all too quick to respond. Sometimes, you know, we we don't take a breath. We don't try and work out what that person might have been saying or at least trying to say. I mean, there are always going to be people who are just, you know, <laughs> straight down nasty people and they're just going to say some unpleasant things. Um, but for the most part, I think people just sort of, you know, we get the wrong end of the stick or somebody might just not have had their coffee that morning. Um, and it, it's very easy to just sort of then jump on them and think, oh, that's a horrible thing. Why would you ever say that? And, and to them, they're like, oh, I didn't actually mean that it just came across the wrong way and, and maybe we could converse about this and not more often than not, I don't see that kind of conversation and I wish I saw more of it because when you do see it, it it's really nice. Oh, humanity does exist. You know, people can like disagree and then realize that they disagree because they misunderstood and not because they actually have a fundamental disagreement. Um, and so that, I think platforms definitely have a, there could be more to do around the education, but it is definitely a human issue of, of just not jumping on each other. And we do that far too much. I think. Well, and, and I also think that in the same way that I don't think people demonstrate always uh, a cultural interest in others, um, there's also people who just have lost the basics of respect. Um, and and that, that is regardless of, you know, your ethnic background, who you love, who you pray to, if you pray at all, how old you are, what geography. Um, respect is, is a basic, I think, um, uh, opportunity for all of us, right? Because in, even in Andrew's example, um, I can agree with you, but I don't have to disagree with you disrespectfully. Um, and so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know that, you know, I, in, in my own mind, know that that's a personal journey. And, and one of the things that I, the reason I, emphasize these things is because I know that some people who may be listening to this um, may work in organizations that don't have a diversity strategy or it, they don't have this infrastructure. And so for me, I like to give people practical things that they can be responsible for um, and, and not necessarily wait for somebody to give them a directive. And I think that respect and, and cultural interest are things that all of us can build, but but the absolute absence of that is what you can see when people aren't willing to be respectful or, or try to learn uh, from the very differences that people may express uh, in in sort of social media or in the world. And clearly, if we can't do it in our everyday conversation, 
right? Then you don't expect that Twitter to be the organist, the, the platform where suddenly you, you conform into cultural interest and cultural awareness and, and, and respect. Those are not things, if they're not a part of who you are, they aren't going to show up when you simply begin to use social media as a platform. I agree. And I also think I I understand why as society we're saying, Twitter, you need to fix this. You're dividing us. I can see how it's almost convenient for us to blame the platform. And I really like the points, Andrew and Candy, that you were both making because um, yesterday I, I was driving and I I accidentally, um, I accidentally pulled a little bit in front of another car. I didn't call it, cause them to wreck, but I mean, I just accidentally cut them off a little bit and I, it really was an accident. And when I realized it, you know, they drove by and gave me a dirty look and I'm like, I'm sorry. Cause it really was legitimately, I, I don't, they came out of nowhere, but I take responsibility, but I wasn't doing it deliberately to try to be mean to this driver. And I know that we, we um, sometimes are good about using our fingers when we're driving or one of our fingers, but I, it, and, and people that are on, I'm in the U S and so people that are on the different uh, they're making different political decisions than I am. I have tried so hard to really try to have a conversation to understand why they are making the decisions they're making, because I want to understand, am I missing something? I'm always curious about what other people think and and how they're feeling and stuff. But I know that we do have to say, Twitter, what are you doing? How are you, why are you letting these people go crazy? But I I think also at the same time that it feels, it feels uh, wrong because this is not Twitter's fault. <clears throat> this is not Facebook's. Now, we there are things that have been done, say, with other platforms they shouldn't have been doing. Don't be screwing with our data. We don't want you doing that. You know, don't be selling it, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, it feels sometimes very unfair to make Twitter the police. They're in charge of who gets to say what. And, and then we have laws, you know, like in the United States, we have something you know, called the First Amendment, freedom to speech and blah, blah, blah. So I, I see what we're imposing upon Twitter. I understand in other social media platforms. I understand logically why we're doing it. But in a lot of way, I think it goes back to something you said, Candy. Who are you in your everyday life? Who are you? Are, are you honoring people? Can you forgive people if they say something wrong or you misinterpret what they say? Uh, so I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And also I'm fascinated by I recently watched The Social Dilemma and I was fascinated in it because they actually were telling me something coding wise that I had that I did not know. And so I, 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 you know, social media has been one of the greatest things in the world ever invented. The internet is wonderful. So much good has already been done. So much good has already been done because of social media. But at the same time, of course, we've become polarized, but it's not social media's fault. But at the same time, some of the things they show in the social dilemma help us understand as humans why this wasn't good for us. But uh, I just wanted to state that I know that I feel we're putting unrealistic demands sometimes on the platforms. And I know y'all have no choice. You have to respond to this. But um, I, I think it is more society needs to fix itself. And, and maybe even rather than say that, because that implies all everybody else go fix yourself. 
I have to make sure I fix myself. So I'll turn it over to Candy and Andrew for y'all to comment. And I know Andrew, I mean, um, Antonio has a question. Yeah, I, I, I would uh, agree that in the same sense that we would say you have, I mean, I, I just have to get up every day uh, and do it to do what I do um, and not be overwhelmed by it, uh, which on many days I am. I have to get up and believe there are more good people in the world than bad. And, and, and I have to believe that many of those good people work for Twitter. Uh, I also have to believe that our leadership uh, falls in the category of, of trying to do something good. And, and I would say that I, I've not said this about a CEO um, other than the one that I'm working for today. Um, I think Jack's actions indicate uh, to me who he is. Um, it doesn't say necessarily that that's who the platform is. But if, if you have a leader that believes in, in equity and fairness and inclusion and is living that in his life, then you also know he would not have built a platform that would contradict that very thing. Um, well, now, I, 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 would also, I would also add that I think that um, in every case, um, there are some people who don't align to whatever that good thing is that you may be trying to do. And they may not always easily identify themselves uh, even on a social platform. They might have a different name, a flower or a dog or someone else's face. And so we have to acknowledge that these people exist. And to some degree, the good people have to do work and whether that's programming, whether that's cultural uh, changes, whether that's the way that you think about how you do business, to literally, quite frankly, overcompensate for the people who are intending to do harm in the world or to others. And, and that's the burden that we all carry. That's the burden that we all carry. It is not Twitter's responsibility uniquely. And we acknowledge that we have more work to do. But we can also acknowledge that we are working and we get up every day, I think, as an organization to try to make Twitter a better platform. Um, and sometimes we fall short. And when we fall short, guess who tells us? The users of our platform, right? So it's not a secret, like it's our very own users that tell us, you should not have done that or you should do this. And the good news is we listen and then we try what we can and we're a much smaller company than other social platforms. Um, and then we reprioritize or adjust or do what we can do to try to move us in the direction of more inclusivity, uh, more accessibility, um, and creating greater access for uh, voices who tend to continue, who tend to be continuously misrepresented or underrepresented. Uh, Jack is a hero in my book. What he did, and I won't get into what, but what Je under Jack's leadership they did with some inappropriate posts coming from some political leaders. And, you know, uh, he's my hero. So I'm a big, big fan of at Jack. Andrew, do you want to comment on it? And then I know we'll turn it to Antonio. Um, yeah, I think sort of, as I sort of said earlier, one of the, one of the, in, in the past, one of the positions I've enjoyed being on the most is, is what is referred to as internal platforms in some places where you actually work on, on systems that people inside the company use. Um, at Twitter, when you work on, on clients, you, you can get immediate feedback from everyone. Like I'm not working on an app that is just sort of out there somewhere with some people using it. Like you know, I, I can go on Twitter and be me 
And I can interact with people who have accessibility issues on the platform. And I can talk to them using the platform about their issues on the platform. And then I can take that back to my desk and I can notionally fix them. Um, and just being able to sort of have that, that conversation just there. Um, and so I, I think, you know, just, I forgot what the original question is really, but the, to have access to the people you, you work for um, in that way, it, it's just, it, it's quite rewarding in that respect. It's how we met. Yeah. So we, you know, we, we engage through the platform talking about what you're doing with the platform. So yeah, it's, it's proof that it works. And it's one of those things that I love about it. Antonio. No, I think it's, it's also a privilege. Not everyone who writes code has the opportunity of getting that immediate feedback from, from the people that, uh, that they, that they serve. You know, you don't have to create a, a, a group, you know, or a testing group to see if your system is working. Mm-hmm. You have them just there, uh, providing a feedback and, you know, and, and it's quite, it's quite amazing. And, and I, I have learned a lot, uh, things that way with my work uh, from those experiences and from those conversations on Twitter. We know that, uh, some people who, listen to us are on the space of disability, uh, diversity, accessibility and inclusion within their own organizations. Uh, the first time that I came across the role of a chief diversity officer was about around 2005, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh, so many things have happened over, over the last couple of years and I, I, I've been tracking this role within the organizations and some of them uh, have opened the role internally over the last three or four, uh, you know, following the conversations around diversity that started to become more trendy uh, uh, recently. So, Candy, you have worked in this space you know, since, like you were mentioning, since your days at, at Berkeley. You are now uh, working at this end at Twitter. What are the things that you, you have learned over your career doing your role to make organizations more inclusive that you feel that are key to succeed. And if someone is listening to us, they can just pick up and say, well, this is, those are the things that I cannot miss. Uh, and the same to you, Andre, how can you are able to bring a group together who can work uh, and talk about accessibility and disability within, within the group of, of developers? Yeah, I, I think <clears throat> I said this when I started. Um, when when I first took on the role, I would say it was very people focused. Um, and what I think is most important, um, in, in the same way that we're building it out, maybe uh, Andrew, when he responds, can talk a little bit about this. Is the Center uh, for Accessibility, uh, the Center for Excellence for Accessibility? Um, what what one must do is to think about this holistically. It is not a patch that you can solve to a problem that uh, arises like the recent days that we have since May 25th in America. Um, it, it's not a, a, a thing that you can do one day and then take off your radar and go back to business as usual. It has to be business as usual. It has to be the way that you think about every single thing you do and from that lens. And the difficulty, quite frankly, is if an organization lacks people diversity, that lens probably isn't applied on an organic basis. It's applied because they ask somebody to come in and help them, right? And often it is one person or a small team of people that they believe have the answers for everything. And the reality is in the same way that 
Um, I have relationships with all kinds of communities. Um, I have a relationship with you is because you inform me of the thing of how it is, how Twitter impacts the accessibility community, right? And so if, if I am not willing to do that, and Twitter as users or engineers or people aren't willing to do that, then, then that's when an organization fails. Um, and what I can tell you is, is that I've worked in organizations where there were BRGs who were committed, business resource groups, where there are a leader, an HR organization who might be committed, where there is a CEO who might be committed, but I've never worked in an organization where they're all in the same place. So there's always some convincing that has to happen of the importance. And somehow people have lost the ability to see that the product or service that they provide to the world actually is not available to the world unless they choose to build it that way, right? And so whether that's sizes and shapes of clothing, right? And whether that is the way that you deploy a product. And, and it's also the only last thing that I would say is diversity is the one thing that people can say they're committed to and not actually be committed to. Like if I tell you that it's gonna take me five years or 10 years to build the next, to solve the problem that you present to us as Twitter, right, related to accessibility, quite frankly, you wouldn't believe it that we were committed to that act solving that problem, right? So if it's a product that you're trying to build, if it's something you're trying to launch, it, you don't get five and 10 years. And in fact, in today's sort of microwave speed economy, right? You actually don't maybe not even get six months, right? So, so, so until diversity is, is, a, is integrated and embedded into the every single thing, into the fabric of the organization and has the same amount of accountability that we have for building products and services that, 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 that allow us to exist, we will continue having these conversations because diversity, you can say, it's gonna take me five or 10 years to fix that. But if I told you it was gonna take me five or 10 years to build a product or to fix a problem on a platform, you'd never give me that time. So until that happens, this will be an ongoing conversation. Uh, and I would say in every organization at every level. Fantastic. No, and um, I'm trying to remember that quote whilst uh, while it's fresh in my mind. You know, boom, when it's gone. Um, thank you so much. We've we've reached the end of our time. I would let you run on into the weekend, but that would be unfair. So, um, of course, you'd be welcome back, um, Candy, Andrew. Thank you very much. Uh, we really look forward to you joining us on Twitter on Tuesday night uh, for a, a rich discussion around this uh, once again. And we, we want need to thank. thank, yes, thank you, Deborah. Yes, Barclays, <laughs> Access, oh, Microlink, no. <laughs> and <laughs> my clear text Sorry. <laughs> for helping us with all of the yeah. things like Not keeping them. the lights on, keeping us captioned, keeping us accessible and able to sustain this community. Thank, Thank you all for being here. Thank you all for having us. Thank you.